experience and to come to hear from Christ himself through his word via his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, today we acknowledge that you truly are the one who can set our heart on fire. Lord, I pray in this room that each one of us would not live vicariously off the passion of someone else's life, but that your fire would be bred in our hearts and that we would become fully alive in you and to your mission and purposes on this earth. So, Lord, to that end, as we've been walking through these weeks in this series, I pray that you would once again take your word, take your challenge, that we would love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we would love others as ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, today we finish up the series we've been in called Life's Biggest Questions, and I'll have to let you know it has been a journey. It has been a journey because every week that I've gotten into the thick of the study, I want to keep going on and on and on in my study, and then I want to reflect about how do I package this, and some of you have been on the brunt end of uh, that result, and maybe you felt like it's been a classroom experience a little bit, but that's good for all of us, as we've mentioned. We need to love the Lord with our heart and mind and our soul and our strength. This last week, we spoke on the subject of morality. How do we know what's right and wrong? Is there an absolute morality? Or is everything relative, up for vote, up for whatever season of life, generation that may be, to determine what's right and wrong? And sadly enough, we live in a culture today, and I heard it said this last week, when did it become not right and wrong, but us and them? And we live in a very divisive culture And I believe it will only get worse as we remove the moral law giver out of our life. Then there is no moral law by which we can navigate. A moral law that gives us freedom to be everything God called us to be. It was mentioned about life groups. I want to encourage life groups because uh, we are taking these weeks before summer and the life groups are sort of message-based. And I know in all uh, the three groups I had contact with this week, Um, sort of the subject matter of morality and knowing right from wrong and uh, good and evil, that type of thing, sort of um, got unpackaged a little bit. Because what we share here on the Sunday morning is a lot of content in this series, but we need to be able to own it and wrestle with it. And you also need not to blindly just try to gulp it down and accept it. Okay, that's what they preach. No, you and I have to wrestle with the convictions concerning things like morality. Concerning things like the origin, where did we come from? Concerning things like meaning, why are we here on this earth? And definitely today with the subject of destiny, where are we going? So I'm going to encourage us to sort of put back on our thinking hats as we finish out this series here a little bit. And I want you to listen to another recap of uh, the staff from RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, as they discuss the subject of evil and suffering. So this sort of ties in with last week, but it's especially where they end up landing, as Stuart McAllister is the last one that shares on this, where he ends up landing on this, so some of the direction we're going to end up going as it relates to the question on destiny. When it comes to the issue of suffering and the fact that there is suffering in this world, we have to take that very seriously. I've seen so many Christians who blow off the question and say, we can jump right to the answer. This is a question that doesn't just come from the, from the mind. It comes from the heart and it comes from human experience. We have to take the problem of suffering seriously. It's interesting if you look back in the history of ideas, the problem of evil wasn't really considered such till about the 17th, 18th century onwards. And of course, it's been trawled out more and more by our new atheist uh, friends these days, being the idea that if there's a God who is all good and is all holy and is all powerful, how could evil exist? Since if he was all good, he wouldn't allow it. If he was all knowing, he would know what's going to happen. He would stop it and so forth. But I think when we look at it, this argument from evil is actually an argument that points us towards also the existence of God. Evil is a departure from the way things ought to be. 
and if it is a departure from the way things ought to be, that means there is a way things ought to be. There is a design plan for this universe. And the only way you can have a design plan that is good, that is supposed to be perfect, is if God exists. So the, the problem of evil really drives us right back to the existence of God. It does not drive us away from Him when we think about it um, uh, from, you know, from a biblical perspective or even from, from a logical perspective. If God truly has created this world in freedom, then there is always the possibility, if it's truly free, for freedom to be both used in good ways and in evil ways. So we can explain the human problem with evil because there are times when humans perpetrate evil against their own bodies, against one another. They use their freedom, misuse their freedom, really, in ways that bring about evil. What are those people who are suffering? What do they say about this? Generally speaking, around the world, those who are suffering say that God must exist. That He is their hope. He is their reason. And this isn't just a crutch to hold on to. He has seen God, they have seen God come through for the people around them. So, the question, first off, that's asked, how could God exist if there's so much suffering in this world? That's not one that the people who are suffering usually ask. Of course, in the industrialized West they do. But generally speaking, around the world, it's not one that people normally ask. I myself lost my husband and didn't in a million years see that coming. Um, I would say that um, everybody who's gone through grief experiences the absence of God. From great, wonderful Christian people like C.S. Lewis to myself to others, I've read in all lots of grief literature that there is that sense that God has abandoned you. So I would say I understand where you're coming from. But I would also say in my own process that as I continue to wrestle with God over it, to argue with God, to pour out my feelings before God, even feelings of, I don't like you anymore, God, I don't love you, how could you do this to me? There is a way in which God is very present in that dark experience, and that's the only way I can describe it. As I clung on, um, and as I reminded myself that all who wander are not lost, um, I, re I was comforted by that and recognized that even in those dark places, God comes near. But even in those places, we can trust that God is with us. That's what the psalmist affirms. And I think ultimately our experience affirms that as we come to see grace being given to us, even in those places that we thought we had gone beyond God's grace because of what we were suffering. But the Christian answer to the problem of evil is that the God who made the world also brought the solution. He wasn't staying detached, as Dorothy Sayers says. He didn't stay up in heaven and think, oh, look at them all suffering, or there's pain and sorrow here, and I'm just leaving them to it. The Creator Himself stepped into the equation, bore the penalty, the price of the sorrow of healing the universe, of forgiving the brokenness, of restoring the creation. And so I feel the Christian answer is a good answer. It doesn't exhaust the answer philosophically, but it's better than the alternatives, and I would take it as a, a credible response. So this week we um, were hit with news once again of a popular icon in the music world having died prematurely. Prince died at the age of 57. He was a couple months shy of being 58. I'm not one in particular that listened to his music. But those who are musicians and uh, uh, have an interest are appreciative of what he done and some of his multiple talents. He must have gotten in an elevator and he never made it out of the elevator. They found him dead, unresponsive. Autopsy been done. They're trying to seek an answer. It appears that he could have died from an overdose of opiates, painkillers. And he'd been on them for many years at a very extreme high level. It's said possibly that he was taking them because he had a lot of stage fright. And to do his shows and his acts, he had to get himself in a place that he was comfortable. I don't know how the story will play its way out. It doesn't really matter, now does it? It's just another life gone that ends up tying people together because we are all mortal. And we do not like to face the fact that we too one day can have life end. This subject of destiny incorporates life in the future 
what's your destiny, and life after this life, but it also comes back then to speak meaning into our everyday world. Your worldview makes a world of difference in everyday life. Soren Kierkegaard said that we need to define life backwards and live it forwards. The subject of destiny is critical for us to know. You see, if your worldview is that of an atheist, then this is all there is. So, you know, as the old beer commercial used to say, go after all the gusto you can, right? Because this is it. Take it on. Take it on. Whether it's 57 years, 87 years, or maybe 17 years, this is it. If that's a worldview that you adhere to, then that understanding of destiny, which basically says not just Human beings die and that's it, but the universe will unravel and wind down and it'll be just be done and there'll be nothingness. That worldview. If that is your perception of destiny, then it comes back to speak into what you need to be doing with your everyday life. And I think I might be going for all the gusto that I can for the simple fact of, hey, there is nothing beyond what I can experience in the here and now. What's called existentialism. A big word. If your worldview is that of a, a pantheist, And a pantheist is somebody who believes uh, that basically uh, all is God. There's a oneness. And every birth is a a rebirth. And you have this impersonal existence with the oneness. I've thought about unpackaging that sometimes because pantheism, we've always thought of, well, well, what is that word? It's a big word. I don't know what that word means, Carrie. I mean, but pantheism, isn't that like Hinduism and overseas, you know, Eastern religion? Yes. But this world that we live in, in America, Southern California, inundated, inundated with Eastern pantheistic thinking and many kinds of so-called religions that are being propagated and people are adhering to. It's not underneath those terms, but that oneness, the distinction between us as a created being and the creator is not there. Now, if that's your belief, karma, reincarnation, oneness, that's going to lead you to a certain way of living out, if that's your worldview. There's another worldview that's really not around all that much anymore in its traditional kinds of sense, and that is polytheism. Polytheism is a belief that there are many gods. So when you studied about Greeks, mythology, that kind of thing, different gods, and that led in a certain kind of direction. But monotheism is the belief that there is a God. Now, different religions come from monotheism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And you can debate and and move your way into those. But just the understanding that there is a God ought to call us into a study of this destiny issue to figure out, well, what does the God who exists say about time moving on and on and on, and is there such a thing as an eternity? And if there is such a thing as eternity, then how do we come back and define our living and the means of purpose that we are given in the here and now? So your worldview, it's the frame, it's the lens that you look through. How do you view life? Oh, you just blew through another week. I blew through another week. I talked to somebody here this morning that I thought I just met at their house a couple, three weeks ago. I said, oh, that's a month and a half ago. Time just keeps ripping and moving. And so we don't normally pause to think, wow, you need to think about a worldview and how a worldview makes a world of difference in my life. You know, I'm just trying to make ends meet. Give me me some how-to helps today. Well, I'm going to do that. Because your how-to helps apply to this question of destiny. Destiny. Prince was uh, raised as a Seventh-day Adventist, from my understanding, and then he became a Jehovah's Witness. I'm sure if you were to have sat with him, he would have a certain articulation of what his worldview was. I wonder if that makes any difference in his life now or not, or that was just something that was nice to do for the years that he was here. If I sat with you, what would your belief fully be? And would that make a difference in your life today or what about tomorrow? I was going to bed last night, tweaking my slides.
studying about some of these thoughts. And I got an overwhelming conviction from, I believe, the presence of the Lord in my room. That I am a man who really needs to get a grip again on the reality of destiny. Because it's real. It's just not a tabloid news story. And am I today where I used to be in some of my younger years even concerning the reality that this life is not all that there is? And does that thing, that reality grip me to the place that it defines the trajectory of my everyday life and the schedule by which I lead? What about you? Destiny. We don't like silence. Because silence causes us to either have to think or to just numb ourselves. A lot of people, maybe you've been there, you numb yourself, whether it's with chemicals or activity. Pursuing success. The silence is good. I rolled out of my bed last night. Onto my knees and I just cried to God and I said, this is not good. This is not good. And what I meant by this is not good is maybe the condition that my heart was becoming over many years where I was not sensitive to the reality of an eternal destiny and the crisis for us to have such an important discussion both here and maybe in our life groups, maybe one-offs with your friends. So I position some of these thoughts to you today. Maybe they take you somewhere, maybe they don't. Because I want to give you hope I want to inspire you about what's ahead. But yet, I also want to call us to sober reflection. So the first is this. Earthly life is not the end of the story, but merely the beginning. I'm not an atheist. I don't live in a naturalistic worldview. If you die in an elevator, that's not it. If your loved one died, it's just not it. It's not done there. This life is merely the beginning of the whole life to come. Ecclesiastes, it says this, the writer, He has made everything beautiful in His time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That thing within you that, that longs when somebody passes away, say, is that it? Is that, is, is that it? What that is, is God speaking into your heart. He's put eternity into your heart because you weren't born to die. You were born to live. You were born to live as an eternal being. And this life is not the end of the story. This life is the beginning of the story. And some of that story is laid out. By the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Why don't you look at this sentence? For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What Paul's saying here is that all of us, we're made in the image of Adam, Adam and Eve, male and female, right? We are human beings and we are mortal beings. When sin entered the world, there was death that came. Yes, there is spiritual death as we refer to, but death itself, physical death, came through Adam. Jesus, God himself come in the flesh, was said to be the second Adam. In Christ, all will be made alive. And so we gather here on a Sunday morning because Jesus rose from the dead. On the third day, on the first day of the week. And we worship Him like we did this morning. And, and we hold up our arms to, to Him, to have Him to fill our hearts, to move us, to serve Him, to love Him. Because 
He's a legend. No. Because he's alive. He rose from the grave, and Christ can make us alive in him. And then it goes on. Verse 23. It says this. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What's the Apostle Paul doing here? He's rolling out the story. He's rolling out the story. As an Adam, boom, we're done, dead. But God, as you saw at the end of the video, He saw the brokenness, He entered into creation, and He did something about it by sending His very presence. To live, die, be raised from the grave, and then guess what? It's going to unpackage and roll its way forward. Christ was the first fruits, that first fruit you pluck off a tree. Wow, the, you know, the apples, the oranges are coming. Jesus rose from the grave. Good news. Hey, hey, hey. He's the, he's the first one to be raised from the dead. It was, oh, right. But there's, there's coming more. When he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, power, and authority. Hey, Jesus, first fruits of the resurrection. But then, then those who are in him, he's going to make alive. And if you're in him, which means you're a follower of him and you're devoted to him, then guess what? Your body doesn't just rot away. Or when they incinerate it, it's going to come back to life. And it's throughout Scripture. First fruits of the resurrection, then when he comes and he hands the kingdom over, he'll end up destroying death finally. There's a storyline going on here. Hmm, interesting. So I don't just live here and grab all the gusto I can. No, I dial in to that worldview, that picture. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Think about it. Your life, my life, I mentioned the prince story, but maybe there's somebody that's recently died in your life, a family member or a loved one that you have yet to sort of get over because they've passed away. Death affects us every week of our life. But there is coming a day, if you are in Christ, when death will be no more and you won't have any remorse about anybody dying. Death will be destroyed. Our destiny is a destiny without any death around us. That's good news, friend. And that news should define us for this day and this hour. The second thing I position to you is this. Ultimate salvation, friends, is not in heaven, but in the resurrection. Ultimate salvation is not in heaven, but in the resurrection, into a combined reality of a new heaven and a new earth. What's this going to be like when we exist in a time continuum, uh, an eternity time continuum, and a space continuum where there is no death? It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But we sort of wrestle with this sometimes because maybe how we were taught, and maybe we've not taught right from churches and podiums such as this. I have a couple of quotes here I want to share with you from N.T. Wright, a great New Testament scholar. He says this, The central message of the New Testament isn't that we are to escape the world and go to heaven, but rather that God's sovereign saving rule would come to birth on earth as in heaven. The story of all four Gospels is not the story of how God came in Jesus to rescue souls for a disembodied otherworldly heaven. It is the story of how God and Jesus became king on earth as in heaven. Do you catch what he's saying here? Maybe you have this frame. What happens when they die? Well, God bless Martha. She's, she's gone, gone to heaven. It's like some disembodied soul. Boom, her body dies. There's evacuated up. He's just sort of floating there. What do we do in heaven? Play the harp, right? Sounds pretty boring. Christians, 
Christians, let's get a better theology of destiny. Scripture does not teach some disembodied soul being vacated from here. Scripture teaches the Jewish people, as they became Christians, they were looking not forward to heaven. They were looking forward to the resurrection of all people in Christ. The catacombs, two miles of underground tunnels, bodies being preserved. The Roman Greek world looked at them as like weird people. What are you taking care of these bodies for? The body was bad in the thinking of a lot of people. Then you had to get rid of the body, you know, get into some, you know, some high and hoity-toity knowledge, Gnosticism. But the body was valuable because the body was going to be resurrected when Jesus came again. And so they weren't sitting around going, oh, go to heaven when I die. Hallelujah, by and by. When I die and they lay me to rest, I'm going to go to the place that's the best. Some of you remember that song? Yeah, some of you are old, like me. I used to sing that Larry Norman song, wasn't it? No. When I die, absent from the body, present with the Lord, I'm in the presence of the Lord. But there's coming a day when He returns that I'm going to have a resurrected body. I don't fully understand all that. It gets a little confusing sometimes. Jesus turned to the thief on the cross. Thief on the cross, one of them, you know, he was saying, you know, hey, you know, Jesus, you, you are who you are. You shouldn't be up here on the cross. The other guy was saying, yeah, yeah he was, if he was somebody, he'd get us down off the cross. But the other criminal, he professed faith in Christ. And Jesus turned to him and said, what? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So what's paradise? Is that some type of disembodied state? I don't fully know. All I know is this. The scripture wholeheartedly teaches about the resurrection of the body for those who are in Christ. But it also teaches absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so, you know, you're in the presence of God, awaiting the resurrection of all people at Christ's return. I don't know how all that story unfolds, but I I do know this, that I'm not sitting around with a mamby-pamsy kind of theology that just simply says, oh, oh, heaven, let's all go to heaven. No, I want to see hope filled in the resurrection. And this resurrection is not just a, a resurrection into what is, you know, some floating city. Scripture says it's a resurrection to a new heaven and a new earth. Look at these verses out of Revelation. You go to the back of the book, right, and see what it says. Then I saw in Revelation 21 a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Hallelujah? Hallelujah. We need to read that last one again. He will wipe away every tear. Read it with me. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Amen. Amen. That's your destiny. You may be in suffering today. You may be in physical pain today. You may be in financial hardship today. You may have come through some terrible kind of broken relationship that you recently had. But you need to know, this is your destiny. Well, Carrie, that's long-term destiny. I know. It can be. It could be tomorrow, though. Whether we pass from this life or it could be when Jesus comes. That hope of the new heaven and the new earth is embedded in Scripture to call us forward. To call us forward. But we're defining life backwards. The new heaven and new earth. I don't have time to go into it a lot, but 
Have you thought that the New Jerusalem was going to be up floating in some type of atmospheric area? Or could it be that the new earth, the new Jerusalem comes down and God establishes the gold streets here? What if he chooses Southern California to really do it up big? Get rid of the freeways, God. <laughs> well, you will. A new body, right? The immortal body. Jesus had it. Jesus had it. Oh, where did he come from? Oh, he Is he a ghost? No, he's eating with us. And he's embracing us. And he's telling us to touch him. Oh, where did he go? Friends, we don't know what that being clothed with immortal is like. But Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And you get a resurrection body if you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ with a resurrection body, I think you're going to have a lot more fun than driving around some speedster. (laughs) See, we could park here a long time and try to rewire how we think. Is the new heaven and the new earth way out there? And God just comes down and incinerates this earth with some nuclear weapons. Boom, it's gone. And he pops down a new earth. Oh, there's a new one. That's the new earth. And here's this new heaven floating up here. Friends, I have grown in my thinking of this. You may disagree with me, and that's fine. Just make sure it's biblically based, whatever you're believing. I believe this old, tattered earth that God used that was formless and void, he grabbed a hold of and he placed creation on it long, long time ago. Sin entered the world through Adam. Death came. Jesus, the second Adam, restores it with life. And we know that creation itself groans as in pains of childbirth right up into the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. The creation groans. This brokenness, the evil, the suffering. God's going to reach down and he's going to recreate and make the new earth. And on the new earth will be the resurrected bodies of those who are in Christ. And we will have an eternity in his presence with him that is beyond description. And this isn't an escapist mentality. You know, Christians can take wax for that. You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, wait a second. I'm just trying to define life backwards and live it forwards. The aspect of this is my destiny and so then I come back and say okay then if I take care of people in their physical bodies now that is serving God if I steward well my environment that is serving God do not dichotomize separate the two it's not as much about here and there as much as it is about now and then. You know what I'm saying with that? Our mindset with destiny is here and there. But it really needs to be more of a continuum of the story being played out about the now and the then. And so that I live for eternity by being obedient today in the destiny at hand. Let me read this other quote from you from uh, N.T. Wright. It's a little bit longer, but he gets at some of this. I think it's extremely helpful. The word eschatology, which literally means the study of last things, doesn't just refer to death, judgment, heaven, and hell as it used to be thought, or as many dictionaries still define the word. It also refers to the strongly held belief of most first century Jews and virtually all early Christians that history was going somewhere under the guidance of God, and that where it was going was towards God's new world, a new world of justice, healing, and hope. The transition from the present world to the new one would be a matter not of the destruction of the present space-time universe, but of its radical healing. You scratching your head any? We as Christians aren't used to thinking 
And we have been shortchanged by our short-sightedness because we don't understand all that Scripture is unpacking concerning the reality of the new heaven and the new earth. It is not ultimate salvation found in a floating heaven. Ultimate salvation is found in you having a resurrected body that will never have physical pain, suffering, no tears. Maybe we get rid of the tear ducts. I guess you've got to keep those for the eyes, but who knows what kind of eyes you'll be able to have. We've got to get a hold of our destiny of receiving, just like Christ did, the resurrected body and living eternally, not to play harps, but to continue to rule and to reign, to see the beauty of justice and healing and hope come on this planet. You know, we spend a lot of time fighting for human rights. We have military people in this room that fight, physically fight, for countries and for freedom and for people to to not be harmed. There's something inside of us that, that wants to help people where injustice is found. That's God living inside of you, your Imago Dei. And we get to move through this time into the eternity time to see it come to its perfection. We aren't going to go, oh man, that was close, no cigar kind of idea. It's like, no. We, we get to see it all happen. Even if you're to die tomorrow, you'll be a part of the resurrection. For the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive on earth will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we reign with Him forever. Not in the air. He's coming down to somehow connect us. And I don't know how it's all going to go. New heaven, new earth. You will be there on that day when you see wholeness come. Let me move on. Two more thoughts. God's kingdom and righteousness orient our lives as a compass orients the traveler. Our destiny matters and our destiny begins now. Jesus said in Matthew 6, referring to people that were freaking out about everything they didn't have. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? How am I going to have shelter? And Jesus said what? Seek first. Strive to seek first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Your destiny now needs to be defined by what will happen then. God will provide You seek first. What's it mean? His kingdom. His kingdom means his rule and reign. Is Jesus the king of your life or are you messing around with him? I say, put him as king. Life will go a lot better. May not be easy street, but life will go better because you're wired that way to submit to his reign. His kingdom. It's at hand. If you let him reign in your heart, it's coming again. I mean, it's coming in its fullness someday. So you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, his uprightness. You struggling to live right? Messed up again this week like I did? I want his righteousness in my life. You seek those things and all that your needs that you need to have around you will be provided. Then look at this verse also in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 9, Jesus says this is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does that have new definition to you when you think in terms of the eternal thing like that? A new definition. If that's our destiny, then when Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's saying what you're doing today in seeking to do good to other people, to raise your family, to be responsible with the gift that God has given you, to be able to make his name known through your life and through your message to others. May your kingdom, O oh God, come on earth as it is in heaven. We know it won't be perfected until you make the new heaven and new earth. But my, my goodness, i got a new definition here. This is now going to reorient my life as a traveler. The compass of my eternal destiny means that I not only pray for his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but I labor and I strive and I work towards that end. I now have a redefinition of what I need to be doing. Here's my last thought. Only two options in this life after life. There's either communion with God in the presence of God or eternal separation with God in the outer darkness. 
this is what made me hit my knees last night and said, this is not good. Because I was wanting to wrap this whole thing up today with a beautiful, only imagined kind of story. But if that is true, and if Scripture teaches what Scripture teaches, and Jesus was right in what he teaches, and I don't know if you want to knock Jesus and say, well, I don't think he knew what he's talking about, then we cannot ignore the reality of what's portrayed in the parable of the great feast in Matthew 22, 1 through 14. In that parable, the king says, go out and fill up my banquet table. I want it to be full. All kinds of excuses given here and there. He gets irate. He says, now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. Jesus is not going to have disappointment that nobody shows up at his party. His kingdom will be filled. And that's why the least of these, and maybe you feel like you're one of those this morning, God invites you into that eternity. He says, follow me. Maybe you feel totally worthless with the life that you've lived. Jesus forgives you, past, present, and future, and one swipe because his righteousness comes in you if you open up your heart to him and say, I want to live for Jesus. You're going to be at that banquet table. It's going to be full. But then it goes on and it says this. When the king came to meet the guest, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? In other words, you don't have the right ticket. Christ isn't living in you. But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet and throw them into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, I know this is a parable. And so a parable is a story to depict reality. But I could go to scads of passages throughout Scripture and in Revelation that depict that there is an eternity of lostness, of darkness, of the weeping and the gnashing of teeth for those who are not followers of Jesus. That is so. The weeping and gnashing of teeth is an internal regret. Oh, I wish I could only. Oh, I wish I could only. And maybe, you know, we throw out uh, traditionally, well, you know, there's hellfire and brimstone kind of preaching. Is that what you're going to get into now, Carrie? No, hang with me a little bit. Traditionally, we thought of hell as fire. But that's because it was referred to, the word refers to Gehenna, which was a valley that was the garbage dump right outside of Jerusalem. So they were trying to depict pictures. If you want to think of hell, of lostness, In eternity, it's like that garbage pit that's always on fire and burning. Scripture seems to allude that lostness, eternity, if you're not in with Christ for what his new heaven and new earth is, is that there's this depiction of outer darkness. You are so low operating. Well, I want to, I don't care, I'll go to hell. There's all my friends. You ain't going to see your friends there. Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you're going to sit there, and you'll probably sit there possibly recalling a service just like this where you actually came and you had the opportunity to receive Christ into your life, but you chose once again to ignore Him. And you chose once again to just try to go after all the gusto in this life. And you're going to have a weeping and a gnashing of teeth, and you're going to say, oh, if only, if only I'd listened to the Holy Spirit then and I'd made the turn. That's what hell is. Darkness and regret. So a lot of teachings that have moved their way into Christianity over the years. One of those is the teachings of universalism, which means everybody's in. Everybody's good. Hitler, Osama, but not everybody. They're good, I guess. Universalism. Then there's another thing called conditionalism or annihilationism that refers to, you know, well, just only those who are in Christ, they get to go into the new heaven and new earth. Everybody else, boom, they're done. They're just extinguished. They're gone. Friends, I would like to believe in that one. It's hard for me, as it is maybe for you, to comprehend an eternal state 
of hell and damnation that Scripture teaches that Jesus taught. But there's justice and there's understanding in the beauty of his universe. We cannot ignore that as believers. There is the reality of an eternal hell as well as a reality of an eternal heaven. And friends, the reality of that destiny is what God broke my heart with. Say, come back and stop licking your wounds. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop getting so consumed with some type of erroneous busyness in your life. Jesus called me to reach people that are on that kind of destiny. Maybe you're one here today, and I am going to offer myself to stay here when we're done and pray with you if you want to know Christ. But what should it do to propel you in your life? Okay, can we move on with this series, Carrie? What are we doing next week? I'll tell you what we're doing next week. It's what's called Great Commission Sunday. We're going to have communion. We're going to talk about reaching lost people. Any who have never heard what you've had opportunity to hear today, to hold Scripture, to look at Scripture. Because we have to be about this in some measure and some I know I do. The parable of the great feast was Jesus' story. Jesus spoke a lot about the lostness of people. But he was broken over their lostness. We don't get to rewrite scripture. In fact, the eternal lostness of mankind, the only thing that keeps me from chucking that is scripture. But I don't get the choice. God's called us to serve his purposes. God's called us to see people freshly redeemed. Shay, would you come? We're going to close with a song. Jesus, in his brokenness, wept. He wept over the death of Lazarus. But he told Lazarus, Lazarus' sister, that there was hope because he had died. And that hope was in him. Our meaning, our morality, and our destiny. Our worldview does make a world difference in everyday life. But it also makes an eternity of difference in the life that is yet to come. Jesus said to her in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe? That's what we're going to do. We're going to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings and worship to Him. Some of you, there's a back of your connection card and there's a place that says, I want to know more about a relationship with Jesus. If you're not sure of your eternal destiny, if you were to die in an elevator today, where you would be, if you'd like to talk about it more, I want you just to mark that. We'd be glad to talk about it. But if you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, God's spoken to me and I need to cross that line of faith and commit my life to Him. So as an Adam all die, those who are in Christ will be made alive. Are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? And you can receive Christ as your Savior, as your King get to hang with him and all those who love him throughout all eternity. C.S. Lewis said this quote, he said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Those to whom God says in the end, all right, then thy will be done. 
it's a volitional thing of a heart. Will you open your arms to God and say, Thy will be done? Or will you continue to live life on a trajectory where God has to turn to you and say, All right, then, your will be done. And you're cast to eternal losses. Maybe it was inappropriate for me at the age I was, at the age of eight, but I remember watching Billy Graham with my family in the living room, and the message of salvation and eternity was presented. And I so bad didn't want to screw up and end up in hell that I went up into my bed and I just cried to God, Jesus, come into my life. I want to be with you. I want to be with my family. And he may say, well, that's sort of maybe some manipulation, a little kid. No. God put eternity in my heart. And I wonder what it would be. Are all of you sure here this morning that you're in? You're good. Because if you're not, And so as Shay leads us in this song, we'll take the offering. You can meditate and thank the Lord. I usually go outside and greet people, and there's some of you new today. I'd love to greet you and haven't met you, but I'm not. I'm going to go back there by the cross. And if you'd like to pray to receive Jesus, Mike and Karen can be back there as well. We'd like to pray with you. Because see what I was convicted about. I just couldn't leave us on the high euphoric note of a new heaven, a new earth, a resurrected body. I have to do the work of an evangelist. It's in my soul, it's in my heart. It's what God called me in the ministry. And sometimes I fall to playing church, just being the nice pastor. But the evangelist within me wants to give you the evangel, the good news. And so I've tried to clarify that today. As Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe? So let's sing and worship this together. You're dismissed to go, I guess. But will you pray with me that we as a body will be diligent about saving people? C.T. Studd, the famous preacher, said, Some people want to live within the sound of a chapel bell, but I want to live for, build a rescue mission within a yard of hell. And I'm asking God anew to bring that kind of conviction to my heart. Let's sing. I'd be glad to pray with you. God bless. We'll see you next week.